1: A white guy takes the idea of whiteness in modern US society and uses it to explore where our ideas about race come from and what they mean today. It sounds like a pretty bold, maybe even four-hardy move, but John Bewin didn't let the scale of the project or its potential for controversy put him off. Over 14 episodes of Seeing White from the show Seen on Radio, the former public radio reporter turned academic, enlists prominent historians, thinkers and writers, and also his friend, Dr. Chenjerai Kumanika, who offers up some perspective from a person of colour and calls out any of bewin's cultural blind spots. Here are a few early clips from the series that really stood out. And
0: maybe, you know, of course your book starts thousands of years ago, yeah. but... Here's a thought I had about the starting point, mm-hmm. which is um, when I was in high school in Minnesota in the late 1970s, mm-hmm. I, re- I can still remember very vividly in my social studies textbook, the three races oh, of yeah. man. Yeah, yeah. And I can see the images yeah. of the Mongoloid, the Caucasoid, and the Negroid. Uh-huh. Um, it was presented as a scientific biological That's right. fact. That's right. That's right. Sort of like, the, you know, yeah. there's certain kinds yeah. of rocks, and yeah. here's the map yeah. of the world, yeah. and then these yeah. are the three races. Yeah. So, um, is it a scientific biological fact?
2: <laughs> the three races, um, in the order usually presented Caucasoid, Mongoloid, and Negroid, Caucasoid at the top, uh, is not a biological fact and only became. Science, in the sense of anthropologists, said that this is true in the 1940s.
3: That's Nell Irvin Painter, historian, Princeton professor emerita, and author of The History of White People. I'm John Bewin. It's Seen on Radio. Welcome to part two of our series, Seeing White, looking at the past and present of whiteness in the world and especially the United States where this idea of being white came from, and what it's for. In this episode, we're going back, well, not really to the beginning. Science now tells us that in the beginning of the human story, people evolved in Africa from one common ancestor a couple hundred thousand years ago. We're all kin and all African if you just go back far enough. Over time, some people walked out of Africa and spread across the world, The branches of the family that spent thousands of years in colder places without a lot of sun, they lost much of their melanin and turned a bunch of different shades depending on the conditions where they were. That's how we became a species ranging from the darkest brown to the lightest pink beige and everything in between. Shades of brown with an array of yellowish and reddish tinges. All of that explains why people look different. It does not explain the wildly inconsistent and ever-changing groupings that people have concocted over the last few centuries. It doesn't explain my high school textbook.
2: So we believe we need to know how we got this thing called race, if we're going to understand racism.
3: Suzanne Plissick is with the Racial Equity Institute. The team is based in Greensboro, North Carolina, but travels the country doing anti-racism workshops. I recorded Suzanne and her colleagues a few months ago in Charlotte. REI's courses are not diversity training. Their approach is not kumbaya, let's get along, let's tolerate one another. Instead, they drop a whole lot of knowledge, especially history, but also sociology, biology.
2: We know, for example, since the human genome project that we are what percentage genetically the same as human beings 99. what 9 99.9 Nine. genetically the same there is more genetic variation in a flock of penguins than there is in the human race There is more genetic variation within groups that have come to be called races than there is across groups that have come to be called races. Statistically likelier that I am closer to you genetically.
3: Suzanne, who is white, points at a black man.
2: Than I am to you.
3: And then a white woman.
2: Anthropologists finally say, and it is way past due, that race is anthropological nonsense. Is that the same thing as saying it's not real? No. No, No, because it's real. It is powerfully real. It's politically and socially real. So we need to know how did we get it and what we say is we constructed it. Scarlet, you come on and be good and eat just a little, No, I'm going to have a good time today.
3: We Americans are notorious for not knowing or caring about history. It's a generalization, forgive me, history buffs, but it's a fair one, isn't it? On the whole, Americans care a whole lot more about tomorrow. Forget yesterday. Yesterday was so long ago, for one thing. Get over it.
0: For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom.
3: Is that you reading, Kizzy?
1: <laughs> Uncle William, it was only a trick.
3: <laughs> that said, most of us do have a general picture in our minds of American slavery. Our schools teach it, and the antebellum South has made recurring appearances in massively popular novels, movies, and TV series.
1: But well, don't split
2: up the family, master. You ain't never been that kind of man. Please, master.
3: Mr. Tom
0: Moore owns Kizzy now. Mr. O'Dell will take away, Dave. <laughs> no,
1: no, I wanna go! Oh God, my baby! No.
3: Some portrayals of American chattel slavery have been more unvarnished than others. Well, I've no understanding of the written
0: text. Well, don't trouble yourself with it. Same as the rest. Master bought you here to work, that's all. Any more will earn you a hundred lashes.
3: But unless you've really gone out of your way to duck the reality of it, you know. Still, how often do we actually let it sink in? How recent it was, and how monstrous. The people who called themselves white, people who looked like me, claimed the right to own the people they called black, to buy and sell and confine them like livestock. Well, no, not like livestock, as livestock. ...asserting utter dominance over them and their children... ...generation after generation after generation. And they met the unending and inevitable resistance from those enslaved human beings... ...with waves and waves of violence.
1: And slavery wasn't just some idea imported to the US... ...and then imposed by early English settlers... It was a result of some very deliberate decisions made by U.S. lawmakers. Here's Suzanne Plisick from the Racial Equity Institute again.
2: Let me ask you, when, when people began to emigrate to this hemisphere from Europe and from Africa in the 1400s, 1500s and early 1600s, did they come identified by race? No. no. What was a likelier identification? Religion a little later in that period, but first of all, it would have been country of origin, so your nationality. So you came as an Englishman or a Dutchman or an African.
3: Suzanne says whatever ideas were floating around in early colonial society about African and European people, there were no official distinctions. Some Africans were free, some were indentured servants, same as the English colonists. Historians say indentured servants from Europe outnumbered those from Africa in the colonies until the later 1600s. It took a bunch of steps to get from those relatively loose beginnings all the way to hardcore chattel slavery confining only people of African descent. How did it happen? We're going to look at some of the key steps through a few noteworthy and revealing stories. Story 1, Punch the one who tried to get away.
2: In the colony of Virginia in 1640, an African indentured servant by the name of John Punch runs away from his servitude. John has figured out that this wasn't what he imagined it to be. Interestingly, John doesn't run away alone. He runs away with a Dutchman and a Scotsman. They are all indentured servants. They are all living in identical circumstance. So they band together and run away.
3: This does not go well. Now they don't make it. The three men are chased down and caught.
2: And a very interesting thing is recorded in the colony of Virginia. The Dutchmen and Scotsmen are given four additional years of servitude as punishment, one to the master to whom they're indentured and three to the colony. But the African is given what we see codified for the first time as perpetual servitude.
3: The judge tells John Punch that unlike the two men from Europe, he will labor for his master for the rest of his days.
2: What have we written down? Slavery. Slavery. Slavery.
3: Some Africans were already effectively enslaved in Virginia by 1640. But the Punch case seems to be the first explicit approval of lifelong servitude, and the first time African and European people were treated differently in the law.
2: Why was it done?
3: This is important. Suzanne says whether the judge consciously intended this or not, his decision was a gift to rich landowners.
2: The story of race, folks, is the story of labor. They needed a consistent, reliable labor force. And they could not have a consistent, reliable labor force if that labor force was banding together and challenging the authority of the colony.
3: Colonial America was deeply unequal. Most people of every color were poor laborers, farm workers, builders, seamstresses. And those workers were prone to getting restless and pulling out the pitchforks. There were lots of worker uprisings. The disparate sentencing of John Punch was one of the first examples, Plissick says, of what would become an ongoing practice by the rich landowning class and their political representatives. The practice of giving the poor people who looked like those in power, people of European descent, advantages, usually small advantages, over Africans and native people.
2: And what did that do? It switched their allegiance from the people in their same circumstance to the people at the top. It eventually created a multi-class coalition of people who would later come to be called white. It created a multi-class coalition. So this was a divide and conquer strategy. It was completely brilliant.
1: Suzanne Plissick in episode three of Seeing White, called Made in America from Seen in Radio, presented by John Bewin from the Centre for Documentary Studies at Duke University. And Seeing White's the second season of Seen on Radio, the third and most recent one is called Men, and it takes a similar approach to gender and the relationship between the sexes. Thanks for listening to the podcast hour from RNZ. If you're finding it helpful to find new stuff to listen to, then please do consider rating or reviewing us with as many stars as you can manage wherever you get your podcasts from and tell your friends and family about us too. And if you're writing a review, then do let us know what you like about the show or how it could be improved. So if you'd like to hear longer clips, more interviews with the people making the shows that we feature, and if four shows is about the right number to highlight each week, that kind of stuff, it would be really helpful to know. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.